I'm a ranger, a new Belgian beer ranger. You can't see my uniform because we're on the radio, but you can bet I'm wearing it with pride. Wandering the land from coast to coast, bringing good beer to the masses, well, I can develop quite a thirst. Now we've crafted a beer with Simcoe, Chinook, and Cascade hops. The Ranger IPA. So bold and refreshing it can satisfy a ranger's thirst. Try a new Ranger IPA and then head online to get in uniform at newbelgium.com. Employee owned, alternatively empowered, New Belgium Brewing. Follow your folly. Ours is beer. We got rangers in position because we got a great mission for yourself and IPA. Sit back and just listen. Turbine spinning with recycled energy. Low water use because waste is the enemy. Just spend some time in the Holy Ranger land. Learn more about what the Belgians This is The Shorts, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Almost every night, for the past four years, I've woken up to the sound of Paul, pissing into the plastic bottle he keeps on his side of our bed. It's basically a modern chamber pot, or a glorified bedpan. It's meant to protect the tendons in his feet, which tighten so much in a few hours rest that they can barely take the weight of his body on a midnight walk to the bathroom. The sight of the bottle in the morning, brimming yellow with a black X marked on the lid, makes our bedroom feel like an infirmary. Sometimes I look at that bottle and wonder if our relationship has changed forever. On our first date five years ago, Paul and I parked his car on a logging road, marked the spot on his GPS, and set out on foot, trying without success to get lost as the spring snow left shallow drifts in our tracks. From then on, our relationship grew up around our adventures. So when he invited me to attempt a thru-hike of the Pacific Crest Trail, I wasn't surprised or flattered. I simply accepted, with a nonchalance only possible for someone who has no idea what she's agreeing to. If you look at a globe or a world map, the 17 degrees of latitude the PCT covers between Mexico and Canada doesn't look like much. But a 2,600-mile trek is still asking a lot of the human body. Maybe it's not a coincidence that fewer people have finished the PCT than have summited Everest. Now Paul goes to physical therapy every summer, when he gets health insurance through his job as a park ranger for the state. But it's hard to heal seasonally, and after four years, it's hard for me to remember that his feet weren't always like a couple of jealous ex-lovers, monopolizing his attention and doing their best to come between us. I try to remember how in our pre-PCT days, Paul and I once waded through knee-deep clay to reach a secret hot spring. How we followed a game trail for miles and found the perfectly intact skull of a bighorn sheep and set to arguing over who had seen it first, and more importantly, who would have to haul it out. I try to remember that Paul's feet will heal, even though sometimes it seems like they never will. When we took our first steps on the PCT, to the angry rhythm of the helicopters patrolling the border wall in Campo, we figured our packs were light enough. 
A 15-pound base weight hardly registered after carrying 70 pounds as field staff for an outdoor program. But now, I regret that I didn't insist on going even lighter to protect our bodies just a little more. There were plenty of ultralight fanatics on the trail that we could have taken cues from. The week we left the border, we met an ex-con whose entire first aid kit consisted of a small wad of duct tape. He reached the northern terminus over a month ahead of us. A friend of Paul's who's done multiple thru-hikes pays for his trips by squatting in condemned buildings and dumpster diving for his meals, even as he works full-time. Meanwhile, he doesn't hesitate to throw down for gear that looks more fit for an astronaut than a long-distance backpacker. But even with our packs weighed down with extras like adequate first aid, Paul and I tried to be kind to our bodies in other ways. The 20-mile days we put in were considered almost suspiciously moderate by some of the other hikers, who would pass us by as they laid down 40 miles, sporting enviable trail names like Freight Train and Bloody Knuckles. Our moderation was also matched with plenty of luck. When we crossed the Mojave Desert, strong winds kept the temperatures low enough to walk during daylight hours. When I took a fall scouting a route over a sketchy ridge in the San Jacintos, a huge rock I loosened on my way down landed nearby, sparing my leg by less than a foot. But Paul and I soon learned. The demons of the body can only be appeased for so long. 940 miles in at Tuolumne Meadows, he started to complain nearly every day about foot pain. Still, I never doubted that he was as committed as I was to finishing. We pressed on. By the time we'd put in another 650 miles to reach the Marble Mountains in Northern California, he likened the pain in his heel to a hammer, striking his bone each time his foot hit the ground. I'll admit, I developed a habit of tuning Paul out sometimes, when his foot trouble was too much of a downer. Sometimes I would make jokes, the kind you use to test a reaction to something you might suggest in earnest, if you had the nerve. Maybe you should get off the trail, I'd say. I can go through the North Cascades alone. They haven't spotted a grizzly up there in years anyway. Needless to say, I didn't encourage Paul to think about setting his dream aside in favor of his health, and I'm not sure he would have been persuaded. He still walked faster than me, but he was consistently miserable, and had wryly begun to refer to his feet by a pair of nicknames. Hoof for his left, and Morty, short for Morton's neuroma, the enlarged nerve in the ball of his right. This new ailment compounded the agony of worsening plantar fasciitis, which was the original culprit. In Oregon, just south of Mount Hood, a rash of red sores bloomed on his left shoulder blade. It was a stress reaction to the chronic pain. In Washington, the colder days seemed to help. I could no longer set my watch to the anti-inflammatory pills that usually came out of Paul's pack every four hours, shaking in their plastic bottle with a sound I'd begun to think of as a death rattle. It felt good to be living in the mountains in October, like stowing away on a vast, wet ship. That far north, we dared to mention Canada, no longer afraid that speaking the word might jinx our chances of actually making it there. Paul even talked about getting a desk job when we finished, something where he could still be productive while giving his body a rest. But a desk job proved to be a tall order 
and so did healthcare. Aside from the modern chamber pot, the best remedy Paul has come up with is to sleep wearing a sort of tube sock-inspired torture device, with a Velcro strap running from his toe to his knee, keeping his foot in a permanent flex. He chalks up his feet on a piece of plywood to stretch them while he washes dishes, and at breakfast, he rolls his arches back and forth over a ball studded with rubber points that make it look like a scaled-down version of a medieval weapon. If I want to go on a longer hike, Paul only rarely feels well enough to come along. I go alone, or with friends, sometimes returning to find him on the porch, sculpting one of his bonsai plants. This is a post-trail hobby, fitting for a naturalist like him, but spooking me all the same. I feel sorry for the tiny trees, trapped in their shallow pots, their branches wrapped with wire. Sometimes I'd give anything to be back on the trail, listening again to the one word of my left foot and the one word of my right, trusting that simply by walking with Paul, I can lessen his pain. Paul recently suggested, only half-kidding, that I try inventing a cure for his feet in my writing. We've tried everything else, so here goes. Tomorrow, Paul wakes up and uncaps the plastic bottle next to our bed. He empties his cold piss onto his foot-bondage tube socks, onto his rubber ball, onto his plywood chalk, and throws it all into the fireplace. There's already a hot blaze going, and soggy as the heap is, it ignites immediately. The smoke rises from our chimney to join the haze already curling above the roof next door. It smells foul, and up and down the street, our neighbors, mystified and overpowered, drop whatever they're doing. But Paul and I don't notice anything, because we're already out the door. My name is Elisa Bowling, and this is my short. Elisa lives and writes in Portland, Oregon. Music today by Band of Horses, Charlie Hunter, and Beach House. You can always find the cuts and links to more information on the bands at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. The shorts are listener-driven. That's right, they come from you. They evolve out of the essays you send in. So if you get an idea, write it up, send it in to dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. Support for the diaries comes from Kuat Racks. If you ride bikes regularly, you owe it to yourself to go check out their creative innovations. Head on over to kuatinnovations.com. If you've got questions about their products too, a good way to reach them is through Facebook. We couldn't do this without New Belgium Brewing and Patagonia. These two companies have partnered together to make this happen with me. Both have signed on for the entire 2010, so thanks to them, you've got plenty of stories coming your way. I'm Fitzko Hall, that was Elisa Bowling, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thank you.